Dr. Nicole LaPera goes by the moniker The Holistic Psychologist because she looks at the entirety of a person's mind, body, and spirit, which is in some ways revolutionary to the field of psychology, but absolutely the future of where we're going. She just published a new book, which is incredible, How to Do the Work, and we dive into that book and all of her amazing teachings on this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Lucy, lucy.co slash amp, by The Cold Plunge, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp, by Onnit, onnit.com slash Aubrey, and by the Fit for Service Academy. When I wrote the book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, Really what I was trying to do was take absolutely everything in the field of human optimization and condense the most important of those things into a single tome, into a single book, so that you could get the entire landscape of how an optimized human day could work for you. And Nicole LaPera in her book, How to Do the Work, does the absolute same thing for the psyche. How do you take all of the growth, all of the healing, all of the, quote, the work, that you need and adapt it to your life. It's an invaluable thing that she offered and this conversation was a real pleasure, so I can't wait to share it with you. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. First up is Lucy. And Lucy is the absolute best nicotine gum out there, period. And why do you want nicotine gum? Well, the reason is that nicotine is a nootropic. All of the nicotinic receptors that it's activating are gonna help you stay focused, and there's plenty of clinical trials and clinical studies on this, help you stay focused, help you drop into a more alpha state, and get you able to accomplish the things that you're looking to accomplish. So, of course, with any nicotine, you also have to be mindful. You want to be the one choosing the nicotine, not the nicotine choosing you. But when used responsibly, it can be an invaluable tool to help you accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. The flavors they have are great. They got wintergreen, cinnamon, pomegranate. They also have a lozenge that's four milligrams of nicotine and a cherry ice flavor. And it's really just something that if you are a tobacco user, this is a really great option because it's a very clean delivery system for the nicotine. So you get 20% off any order if you go to lucy.com slash amp and you'll get 20% off your order. So check it out and see what you think. And of course, with all nicotine products, there is a warning. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So a few weeks ago, the entire city of Austin was one giant cold plunge, but for most of the time, it's a nice temperate place to live. And even when we were in snowpocalypse, I still found myself craving the immersion in the cold. And fortunately, I have the best cold plunge out there on the market. It's from thecoldplunge.com. They've got ozone and UV filtration. The water is constantly circulating at a constant temperature. And it's just the cleanest, sexiest cold plunge out there, period. So definitely check it out. Go to thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp for $111 off. And this is something I tell everybody. If you're looking to actually change the way that you're thinking about something or change an emotion, don't try to change your emotions with your mind. Change your emotions by changing your body. And you can change your body by getting in a cold plunge. So anytime something's bothering you, just focus on your nervous system. Breath work or something like a cold plunge is going to be the best way to do it. So that's one of the reasons I recommend cold plunges so much. So once again, thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp. 
and use the code AMP for $111 off. Don't forget the code AMP for $111 off. Next up, we have Onnit. It's a new year, and this year is all you, and Onnit is here to help support you in every way possible. You've heard me talk about the Onnit 6 programs, which are phenomenal, but sometimes you just want a quicker workout. You just want to get in, get out in 30 minutes, and make sure that you're moving in the right way, that you're challenging yourself in the right way. So we have a solution. It's called Onnit in 30. So 10 workouts for under 10 bucks, and they're all incredible workouts. These are some of the most popular classes we offer at Onnit Gym, the 30-minute express class. People go in on their lunch breaks. People go in, and you get a full workout with a warm-up, with a cool-down, with everything that you need to support your body, make sure you stay healthy, strong, and happy, as Wim Hof would like to say. So check it out. On it in 30 is now available. There's routines for kettlebells, body weight, and mobility at 30 minutes or less. It's streamed online, on demand, so you can train anywhere, anytime, and it's training for your whole body and for every experience level. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey or check out onnit.com slash onnit in 30 to go right there. And finally, we have the Fit for Service Academy app. And what I really want to talk about today is the fact that all of the in-person podcasts that I'm recording, whenever I have a guest in studio, we are streaming them live on the Fit for Service Academy app. So that means you'll get a first look at the podcast, and I'm going to ask the guest a specific question just from the Academy members. So this is just one of the many features on top of the master classes, the guided meditations, the guided breath works, the ecstatic dances, the community building, and this burgeoning lighthouse of different people who are attracted to personal growth, expanding consciousness, and like this podcast itself, doing the work. So please check it out. Go to aubreymarcus.com slash Academy. You can also take a quiz about your sacred role in your own tribe by going to aubreymarcus.com slash tribe. And finally, if you're ready to check out the community, download the app in the App Store, Fit for Service Academy, and the first month is absolutely free. And now, an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Nicole LaPera. Dr. Nicole LaPera, it's great to have you on the show. It's truly an honor, Aubrey. Thank you for having me. Of course, I just had the honor of reading your new book, which is phenomenal, like so good. I was so impressed. I I read a lot of books for a lot of guests, and there are a lot of good books, actually. Uh, But this book really blew me away. So really, really excited to dive into it. My cheeks hurt from smiling. Thank you. It's been a labor of love. And now I'm in that space where I'm just dying for people to get their hands on it and to read it. So hearing... Hearing that feedback means a lot. Thank you. I think, you know, one of the things that I loved is one of the pillars of my own voice is just being authentic, telling my stories, whether they're ugly or whether they're pretty or whether no matter what, and leaving all those judgments aside, it just is what it is and telling it and then offering the lessons. And that's something that your book does in uh, in such a beautiful way. You just open up and talk about everything in your family, your relationships, all the, all the stuff. Yeah. And, and that actually is, I am grateful to hear, hear you say that and honor that, that, that honesty, that authenticity is actually stepping into that, embodying it, I should say. And speaking from that place is really a marker of my healing journey. I'm not someone who has done that. I actually got quite good at filtering myself. 
um, really based mainly on my imagined impact I would have on others with my main goal to be to keep the peace at all times. And right. so many moments where my, my truth might not have, have served that end. Um, so I stopped doing that for quite some time. And for me, like I said, the, the Instagram itself before it even gave me the opportunity to turn it into a book was the first major exercise in me embodying my authentic self. And you tie you tie some of those impulses, like you just mentioned, that desire to, you know, be loved and be appreciated for this thing that you're projecting, which isn't really your true self. But if you put on this face and everything everybody says, oh, this looks good, then you're gonna feel better. You tie all that back to, you know, early childhood challenges that we face. So if you if you would wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about what was it that created that very common and very usual, you know construct that we all have in our own minds yeah, childhood for for all of us is an incredibly impactful time um, when we come here regardless of how it is you come to believe we are gifted with this earth experience universally as humans we're all in a state of dependency we can't sustain life on our own we're one of or I think maybe the only mammal that needs caretaking of some kind so that the very universal saying i think that a lot of us might have heard we're wired to connect really highlights how important relationships are integrally from the moment we arrive here. So from that space of dependency, we're adaptive, we're attuned, and we're making connections in order to, to the best of our ability, continue to make, make sure that our physical, emotional, and spiritual needs are met. And when we find ourselves, as many of us do, in environments um, with caretakers, caregivers that were just as impacted by their past experiences, what we do is we begin to modify. We begin to wear masks or inhabit roles, playing the caretaker, the helper, and the million other things that we begin to do to ensure that our value or our worth is secure. Um, and what I've come to find is that after a lifetime of living in that way, in that inauthentic or much more limited way, many of us begin to our souls begin to scream out in many different mm -hmm. ways, either physical symptoms or emotional symptoms or just relationship or, or way of being patterns that just keep us unfulfilled. You mentioned a lot of those different roles, those archetypes that we might play. I think there's seven of them um, that you actually listed out. And it was really interesting to read through. And, you know, you can recognize, I've always found that every different, pathology every different challenge that's out there universally i if i look hard enough i can find a little bit of that in myself as well but there's some that's that really show as like the dominant you know this is the dominant archetype this is the dominant role that i was playing to get the love that i craved when i was younger and for me it was the overachiever you know it was this idea that if i just kill it you know and if i have do something really amazing my dad and my family everybody the teachers the coaches they're all going to love me they're all going to give me that attention they're all going to give me that praise and it created this deep deep you know idea that i need to continually do this because you internalize those constructs that you get from those people and those relationships you have so i still carry some of that with me whereas if i go through a day and i don't accomplish something or at least don't, you know, sometimes I can have the goal to do nothing in a day. And if I actually accomplish that goal, I'm fine. I'm achieving my, my goal. But I have to always be achieving my intention or else I go to bed and I'm like, I, and I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm tracking it. 
as you you know talk about yourself capital s self that's able to observe and witness and i'm able to do that but nonetheless i still feel it i still feel like man i didn't quite do it and it goes all the way back to that little overachiever aubrey who's just trying to do his very best all the time to show everybody how good he is yeah i appreciate you sharing that and i very much resonate with that archetype as well for me it began channeling into school, into athletics. And, you know, I was gifted with achievement in both of those areas quite easily. So I kept pushing. And I think what you're describing, whether or not it's overachiever or whatever the role is, what I'm hearing in you share, and I think what universally as humans we get stuck up in is doing, right? We get in that monkey mind. We get an over-reliance on this idea that we do need to do in whatever direction it is for us to be enough, to be loved, to be included, um, as opposed to beginning to break that habit and learning how to be, um, not only just be, again, be in our pure essence, whatever that is. So I very much, very similar to you. And what I began to realize is that that compulsion to do, that overachievement, that did feel like a channel. When I checked my box, I did feel somewhat of a relief in that moment. And what I came to realize for me, Aubrey, is that was wired into my physiology, such as when I stopped doing, I was inherently intrinsically uncomfortable. I was in a familiar space of non-activation that for me was intolerable in a certain, to a certain extent. And you'll hear me use familiar versus unfamiliar a lot because it maps on to our evolution and our intrinsic desire to stay in those familiar patterns because they do feel safe to some extent, even if logically it's keeping us endlessly exhausted as just speaking from my own experience, that compulsion to achieve has for so long. The, you talk about some of the physiology that's associated and I can you know, really recognize that one of the things that I've utilized to keep me in this overachiever you know, mindset and to keep my body is I've really tapped a lot of stress hormones. I've trapped, tapped my adrenaline and cortisol to keep me performing. And I wake up every day and I reach for it because I got to crush it today. So, okay, come on, bring it cortisol, adrenaline. What do I have to do? Is there a tight deadline? Perfect. That's exactly what I like because that's going to fire up the engines just right. And I'm going to get out there. But it doesn't actually work because then I get all tired and then I have to reach for more coffee and then the coffee doesn't work. And then I go to the nicotine and the nicotine doesn't work. And then I'm really not actually, you know, performing at the level that I want to perform. It's just an old habit. It's an old habit that I'm learning how to retrain myself with and actually doing the exercises that relax my nervous system, that slow down my speed, really allows all everything to flow through. It reminds me of what the, you know, the Navy SEALs say that, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And that's really the thing. When I'm in this frantic pace trying to go out there and do all of these different things, every once in a while it works out great. But for the most part, if I just stay slow and smooth and relaxed and I smile and I laugh and I take a pause to have a little dance in the kitchen with my wife and play with the kitties or do whatever, I am far more effective than this tried up of hyper vigilance and and hyper anxious approach to accomplishing everything in my life yeah for a very long time um i was really disempowered because i didn't realize how much I, my physiology was keeping me locked in that monkey mind and in that connection of mind and body stuck in that stress reaction i um, mean for a very long time when i would work in my old practice in the much more traditional sense 
where the gold standard is CBT, this idea of all we have to do is think a new way. I am the first proponent. I have a whole chapter in my new book about the power of thought and belief and how it can affect our physiology, though the reality for most of us is our nervous systems are so dysregulated that they're sending those continuous signals up to our mind of stress. So very similarly, it was about learning how to regulate my nervous system, learning how to more comfortably activate that peaceful parasympathetic state that helped actually then calm my mind down. And something I pick up on now, even though I'm aware of this and I you know, can more comfortably activate my parasympathetic and inhabit that peaceful state, I notice that as my agitation or my anxiety or my stress goes up, I can quickly start to speak quicker. I can start mm. to move around my house quicker. Now what I've developed is the conscious ability to witness myself in action. Because what I know is the quicker I move, the quicker my heart rate spikes. And then my mind, which is constantly scanning my body, is going to continue to register escalating stress, continuing to spiral into those stress-based thoughts, giving me all of the things to worry about. So I've actually tried to operate kind of from intentionally slowing myself down. When I hear my voice begin to pick up, when I see my body begin to tear around the house because I'm feeling a bit agitated for whatever reason, I'll do like you say, you know, I'll actually consciously say, stop, take a deep breath, maybe slow my cadence of speech down. And that kind of from the outside in, from the top down, very intentionally calms my nervous system and then obviously expands and allows me to inhabit that peace a bit more comfortably. Yeah. And learning those different tools to be able to do that. You know, I'm always trying to tap into these different tools that can help you, you know, modulate your, your whole system, but doing things that are actually affecting the body first, which will then affect the mind. And I think that's something that's really important. Andrew Huberman talks about it. You Mm -hmm. talk about it a lot in your book and, you know, simple things. One of Huberman's favorite things that he repeats over and over is there's some science about taking two short inhales and then a long sigh exhale and the and the science behind a longer exhale than your inhales and and this actually starts to slow the nervous system down because otherwise you know i will do the same thing as you i'll catch myself be pacing around you know and going through especially and then i'll start eating and i'll eat really fast and mm-hmm. then i'll bite my lip and then i'll get frustrated <laughs> like i knew i was eating fast and i bit my lip but i don't slow down i just <laughs> curse the fact that i bit my lip and then you know it's it's in this pace sometimes i laugh because it's a way to like catch myself but ultimately, you know, finding those different tools. So what are your favorite tools besides, you know, breath work to kind of drop yourself and drop that nervous system into a more relaxed state? I began, you know, my healing journey to, to focus on the body. I intuitively, I think, knew that I did need to recreate some balance. So outside of breath work, which for me wasn't a breath work practice, as a lot of people, I think, imagine breath work to be. I didn't carve out time where I sat quiet in a room. When I began my practice of breath work, it was tuning into breathing throughout my day. That felt a little less intimidating for me because for me, I still very much had that monkey mind. Sitting in quiet, turning inward was really uncomfortable. Though the more I was able to harness the power of my breath, the more I was able to give myself those peaceful moments. For me, it was caring for my whole body system. It became paying attention to what I ate consciously, to how I was eating, to how the food I was eating was making me feel. 
my sleep was a big system that needed some overall. I didn't sleep well for as long as I can remember. I always felt tired. So really, you know, getting my sleep hygiene practices in place was a really big part of it. And for me, all of that allowed my body to create that, that balance, to tell my nervous system that I didn't have to be activated all of the time. And again, this wasn't something that happened overnight. Um, this was very gradually shifting, you know, like I said, the way I was eating, the way I was treating my body, um, that over time I began to be able to feel actually that peace. When you really start to look at it, the body and the mind and the separation, this duality, this mind-body duality that we have is really a, a fiction. They're so absolutely interwoven because your mind through the vagus nerve, and you talk about this in your book, affects your digestion. You know, it tells your digestion, all right, do we need to pass this food super fast because we're in a hurry and we got to get we gotta get things done? Or, or maybe we're a little scared. Maybe we should hold on to this because there's no time to go to the bathroom. We, gotta, we got things to do, right? So we're constantly sending signals that can affect our digestion, can affect our gut health, which then is in this cycle that's going to potentially send inflammation back up to the brain or dysregulate our system. But either way, whether we approach the body or we approach the mind through our breathwork practices, our cold practices, or whatever thing, we're going to start affecting multiple systems. You can't actually separate the two, mind and body, and say, this is this one, and this is this one. But that's a big problem that we're seeing in the medical industry, is that this mind-body duality is still kept separate outside of the fact that every single clinical trial test for the placebo anyway so we know that we know that the mind can affect the body but nonetheless we still treat both as distinct entities when they're not yeah that that is the the premise of, of how i was trained i was trained in the in the realm of the mind i was the mind doctor as a clinical psychologist um, and of course that was very much separated from any ailment of the body and what i saw in myself and the overwhelming majority of my clients was an interconnectedness between psychological symptoms or diagnoses, if you will, and actually medical ones. And then obviously diving a bit into gut research and gut health and the fact that the health of our guts is sending through the vagus nerve messages to our brain. I very quickly realized that working in that very one, one-sided way was limiting, was a very big reason why myself and a lot of my clients weren't able to create change, weren't actually getting better. And that's why now I'm so impassioned about the need for the field to begin to more wholly embrace the holistic model. And if you were to ask me, I believe that goes beyond just acknowledging the connection between the mind and the body. I believe that there's an indescribable entity, a soul, a spirit, you know, that other thing, that essence, that makes each of us the unique individual that we are, that I believe also um, ought to be considered in, in this integrated view of the human. Um, and in my opinion, it, it is typically imbalances in one or all of those areas that are causing, whether it's the symptoms or the patterns or the life experience that we're continuing to have into adulthood. That idea of spiritual trauma I mean, I think that was beautifully put in how you weave that in, because of course, you know, I've been on my own, you know, spiritual discovery and experiential journey for over 20 years now, since I had a vision quest out in the mountains and took psilocybin with a shaman at 18. And 
I didn't believe that there was really anything but a mind and a body. And I did believe in the, in the duality. And I was fully into this materialist, reductionist viewpoint of the world. And then I felt both of those things evaporate. And that thing that we're talking about, call it the capital S self, call it the soul, that's all that there was left. And I was like, wow, I got to rethink a few things here. And then that shifted everything. But to understand that this is another, that third system that is really needs to be nourished and needs to be supported in just the ways that the mind and the body. And, you know, based on our current paradigm, this is asking a lot because we're already trying to get people to identify that the mind and the body are interlinked. And now we're adding the spirit, which is absolutely the truth, in my opinion. I know yours as well. But it's, it's really a radical, radical paradigm shift. But it needs to happen because, you know, we're not getting better as a, as a society, as a collective in, in, the, in the macro. You know, individuals are, absolutely, because they're following these practices. But we're still getting sicker and sicker because the paradigm hasn't caught that critical, you know, tipping point yet. And I'll be the first uh, to acknowledge that for a very long time, I struggled with any concept of spirituality, of religion. I very much was in the indoctrinated scientist, um, that science was my, my religion and my God. So any, any speech for me, any book, anyone writing about this spiritual essence, um, you know, un- until the, the more recent past, I would have rolled my eyes. I, I would have looked for the scientific explanation. So I know how, how difficult it is. And I know a lot of us, you know, have hesitancies and resistances in acknowledging that though I'm also seeing a really greater shift in the collective toward acknowledging it, whether it's through like yourself, those of us who have had, you know, the experiences with psilocybin plant medicine, or just those moments in life, birth of a child where we meet, right. What we feel the closest to that, that spiritual essence or, didn't happen that way for me. For me, it was very gradual. It was an undoing where I was at what I refer to as my dark night of the soul, which for me was physical and mental and psychological symptoms where I just felt empty. I just felt depleted. I, the overachiever, had by that point checked every box I had intended to check in my life, yet the feelings I was having inhabiting that life didn't match up. So for me, it was a journey of pulling back layers and of like I described earlier, beginning to heal, beginning to feel safer in my body before I began to connect with my own soul and with my own essence. So for me, it wasn't quick. It wasn't like, oh, there's something back there. I was actually challenging myself along the way. I was my subconscious scientist was rolling its eyes at me as I was sitting in meditation, as I was attempting to turn within and then gradually over time, I began to allow in more and more this awareness that there is something else and to honor that space. And I just like to share my story because I think a lot of us are challenged out there with different mindsets, ways of being, um, meaning systems where inhabiting that more spiritual space is difficult for different reasons. Absolutely. Especially if we haven't felt it or if we don't really believe it that's the that's the hardest part because it's you know you have somebody saying this is something that's really important and they're like i don't know what you're talking about it's just words and then i think that to me is the is the great value of these plant medicine journeys is for a skeptic you know who doesn't 
isn't even going to take the necessary steps because you absolutely don't need them. You can follow the steps of the breathwork practices, the meditation practices, ecstatic dance practices. There's a million ways that you can quiet the mind until that part of you emerges. But will you do those things just on pure faith? Some people will. But some people like me, the, the thick-headed monkeys, really need to get whacked over the head with a, with a mushroom to say, oh, okay, this is something that's within me. It's always within me. The mushrooms didn't give me my soul. It just revealed my soul. So how can I find my way back to this place where I can see it? And that's, I think, the thing that a lot of people miss about it. They're like, you don't need plant medicine to do this. Absolutely, you're right, you don't. But some of us need to have faith that that thing, that endpoint that we're going towards is real. And, and that's what the plants can offer. Yeah, and I think I'm hearing the the underlying thing that we're you're talk we're talking about whether it's in that moment of of plant medicine induced you know essence pure essence connection with soul or whether it's like I described a gradual unpeeling. I think what we're both describing here is at least what I believe our greatest teacher the wisdom of lived experience. For many of us, things remain conceptual. They remain out there. Even the large majority of everything I talk about isn't new. It's just spoken again in a way. So I see it that allows maybe for some of us, some of these concepts to not only remain out there, but become actualized in daily practice to then create the lived experience of something. So again, whether it's because I took the psilocybin and I had the experience in that moment or because I gradually created changes in my life, I don't believe anything actually shifts us um, until we've lived it ourselves. Yeah. You know, just to, to give you some, you know, due respect for this book, I also feel like when I wrote Own the Day, I didn't come up with anything new. I just took the best research, my own best practices, and I had some different you know, novel ways that I put a few things together. But nonetheless, this was really information that was available. I was just telling it in a story and through my own you know, mouthpiece in a way that made sense and also collating and collecting all of these disparate different ideas and putting it into a single optimized day. And to me, this is really what your book did is it just took the entire field of mindset and how to support the body mind spirit collectively how to look at our childhood issues how to look at our you know attachment styles and relationships and everything and just put it into one book and i was like wow this can really clear out a shelf you know <laughs> like you don't really need to go deeper in any of these things and that's really what i tried to do with own the day like you could get 20 books for all the 20 different chapters that i had you certainly could and i invite you to do so and if you want to go deeper there's people like ben greenfield that will write literal tomes that look like you know merriam webster's unabridged and you can read those things and great you know and i read some of those things myself to write this but it's so valuable to just have the entire landscape the whole territory mapped out in a way that's digestible understandable relatable through the examples that you give of yourself and your clients and uh, it was just such a pleasure. I know that I'm going to be recommending this book. I've already started, although I don't have copies of the book yet. Like, you got to read this book. And they're like, okay, I'm in. How? And I was like, you have to wait. But, <laughs> but I'll tell you when it's ready because this is uh, it's just so valuable to have everything kind of put together because it allows you to make the connections between all of these different things, which I was even making myself, you know, looking at these things that were siloed, you know, different aspects of 
all right, you know, this thing happened here and how does that affect this? Well, because everything was collected, where I was able to draw those connections and get a much more holistic view of my own psyche and my own path. And I know myself better after reading it. Well, I'm honored that uh, it is coming across as, as, as comprehensive as I intended it to be. Um, when I created the Instagram account for me, like I said, when we began, it was I had really two main intentions. The first was it was an exercise in me speaking this new truth of holistic wellness, sharing my own journey that you know allowed me to embody that truth. And the other intention was I was starting to feel a bit disconnected and lonely and ready to begin to present myself authentically to find those you know, authentic connections. So another intention was to begin to connect with other people. Um, after I began to share the tools and see how universally resonating they are, I also, you know, very quickly began to understand the limitations of social media, the, the reality that we can present clip it clips and snippets and sound bites and, you know, somewhat practical daily tools. But I saw very quickly um, and desired very quickly to, to put this down in a, in a more comprehensive book that people can live with. So hearing the way you're describing it and sharing your own journey of writing your book, you'll always hear me voice. One of my main intentions for everything that I'm doing is to empower humans to embody their stories and to begin to develop the confidence in speaking that truth. And on the other side of that, to empower us as now consumers of ever-present information that is the digital age and to you know, develop that intuitive space where we can sift through, pick the parts of someone's story that resonate and that can better inform our journeys of healing and of course, leaving the rest. And how you described it is really beautifully what my intention for all of this is, empowering other people like myself and like you to speak their stories authentically in safe relationships or communities within which they can do that, embodying our true selves and then, like I said, we have a really beautiful, I always think of a puzzle analogy. We have a beautiful puzzle coming together around the collective and all of us showing up in our uniqueness, sharing our stories, helping each of us transform. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's beautiful too, because, you know, I'm writing my next book, which is, you know, a book called Master Your Mind, Master Your Life. And a very different book. It's taking people on a hero's journey of the mind through twelve different, you know, challenges and steps that you know we all must approach. And it's it's interesting because I see the corollaries. We took a different approach, but so much of that information is information that you know we've both uncovered and lived and discovered. And and the truth is just the truth. There's no there's no way to like you know, you can you can dress it up. You can put it in a costume. Like if you got a dog, you can put it in a little sweater. But it's still your dog in a sweater, you know. And and it, you can't change the breed and you can't change the the species because the truth is is what it is, or it's it's not serving anybody. Uh, but just weaving it in different ways. And and one of the ways you know to take people on. And I really love the fact that you you talk to all of your audiences. You know, hashtag self healers. You know, the self healer community because. That's really where you know my next book starts. It starts in in the ordinary world where people are saying you're broken and you can't heal yourself. You know you have to go to this different pharmaceutical or this different thing to to heal. And don't worry about it. Just pay us your money and we'll handle it. And it's really robbing people of their innate power. And that's where it has to start. You have to first be empowered to go on your own journey yourself and say it is possible. You are powerful. 
and you can do this you know and there's lots of things that can help absolutely feel you know you should reach out for help but you can do this and that's like the the empowering message that's at the start of any of these journeys it's so important and uh and i just applaud you for really driving that home so much like giving people not only the tools but also that encouragement to say you got this appreciate you acknowledging that and i agree i think i was that person too who outsourced who looked outside of myself like i described earlier to have my needs met to have my value assigned to show up in a way that felt comfortable everything for me was outsourced um, looking for out answers outside of myself and i think you know based on the power of our subconscious and and all of those habits and patterns that begin you know that are created very early on for a lot of us, we render ourselves disempowered because we're showing up from that space unbeknownst to ourselves day in and day out. We're operating from that subconscious autopilot, which is very reactive. And the reason why I'm just discussing this on the heels of this concept of empowerment, that's an incredibly disempowered way to live because it does feel like the world is happening and then here my reaction is and I don't actually have the tools to choose to show up differently. And again, the large reason is because a lot of us are in that subconscious autopilot at the time that these events are triggering ourselves, us or activating ourselves. So for me, you'll always hear me go on and on about how empowering in and of itself, a practice of consciousness can be. How learning how to show up in the present moment, acknowledging the pull of that subconscious though over time, beginning to expand the space and create the opportunity to choose. Now this is, I don't care if you're choosing a glass of water each day, like you'll read about in my book, um, where a very near and dear member of the self healer community named Allie began an incredible transformation journey where she's now healed symptoms that were debilitating her of multiple sclerosis of MS, all beginning with a glass of water. And the, why, the reason I'm bringing that up now is because she created that glass of water habit in her conscious space. So before long, it didn't matter what she was doing within that choice. What mattered to me and what matters to all of us, as far as I see it, is that choice, is empowering ourselves to say, yeah, I might have lived a lifetime of reactivity, of powerlessness, of feeling like the environment around me was affecting my day to day. However, in one small way, perhaps around one glass of water, if I can live in that embodiment of choice, before long, I can empower myself. And then I can expand that choice of, of course, beyond one glass of water to changing my other habits and patterns. It's interesting that glass of water is one glass of water before the coffee. And that's something that I write about in chapter one of Own the Day. And it's actually the most popular thing in Own the Day. People, people talk about their morning mineral cocktail, which is a tall glass of water, room temperature with some sea salt and a little bit of lemon. Replenish the electrolytes, you know, get some of the lemon juice in the water, get it all in your system, help your digestion. And that one thing, I think, is a symbol for people who are deciding, okay, now I'm choosing to take control, own the day. I'm choosing to take conscious control of my day, of my life in a way and and maybe they don't do anything else that day other than their morning mineral cocktail but that thing as a symbol is powerful it's important to just remind the self like hey i'm doing this for me i'm on this i'm on this journey and then if other things come which they probably will and which did for ali and you know these things will start to stack but making that first symbolic and also meaningful gesture 
of like, I'm in this. I'm in this to do the work. I'm in this to own my day. I'm in this to be a better version of myself. And and doing that for yourself is important. I, to this day, Aubrey, still practice each and every day uh, a new habit I've created when I began my journey of future self-journaling, which is the intention, setting an intention each and every day, me through a journaling practice of continuing to create change. So even though I'm now years into healing and I've create, created many habits and patterns that just started with one promise, I still show up you know, most mornings and intend for my day to continue to work toward a different future self. So I do that to this day. And for me, it's been incredibly helpful um, because for me, it is that conscious awareness, that time in my day where regardless of what happens moving forward, I am committing to myself to just be aware of myself throughout the day to then make space for should the moments arise where I can continue to create new choices for myself. So for me, I don't see a a time in my future where where, where I'll stop that practice. Um, Because each and every day, there are new intentions that I'm setting to either continue to show up as I am or to continue to create change in the areas that would benefit me. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take people on a little bit of a, you know, a hyphenated self-healing journey. I think we've covered a lot of the different ideas here. And I think we both agree that first step is to understand that you are powerful and understand that, you know, you need to set the intention to live a different life, be a different way, heal the things that you need to heal, you know, reach your potential, capital P potential, if you like, of your capital S self, right? Like reach that level where you're fully expressed as who you are in your truth, in your love, in your vibrancy, in all the ways. So setting that intention, having the power. And then I think we talked a little bit about the landscape of how both the body can affect the mind and the mind can affect the body. But one example that really drove it home for me about how the mind affects the body is you you took us through a little discussion of a lemon and so if you could if you could do that for people i think it's really it's really beautiful how that it reminds us how much the mind actually affects the body absolutely so you know we we now know that our our mind is so powerful that even pure imagination can create shifts and changes i think the most common example that a lot of us maybe not so positively experienced on the given days, the longer we, we think a stressful thought, the before I know it, like we spoke earlier, I'm in a stress-based reaction. And a beautiful example is if we were to envision, right? Most of us have come into contact with, with a lemon. Um, so just envisioning, you know, maybe plucking a lemon off your table or from your, your fruit, your fruit drawer in the fridge, um, and really visioning the, the lemon and holding it in your hands and maybe some listeners want to close their eyes to really get the, the full sensory effect and seeing the, the yellowness of the skin and touching it and maybe even bringing it up to the nose and smelling, um, bringing to, to mind the, the scent of lemon. Uh, and then, of course, we can grab a knife that's near you and cutting the lemon open and maybe smelling the juice as it pours out, Um, maybe even cutting a slice of the lemon and perhaps you're gonna get ready to pop the lemon into your mouth. And I think as we go to do that, those of us who have come into contact with the lemon might even begin to feel salivation or saliva, maybe puckering of our lips. Um, And we could do this with, with any visual, really. The more immersed we can become in our sensory experiences of something, 
the more we can actually induce that physiological reaction as if some of us might even have felt as if there was a lemon actually in our hands and i still got saliva niagara falls going on right in my right in my mouth i mean it's, really it's uh it is, is really powerful and it just shows just a thought created the physiological response and i think so that's understanding okay got it we're powerful and our thoughts can change our body now i would you know i'd love to bring people through something i talk about in my book as well how six deep breaths in a japanese study showed that was enough to actually lower blood pressure and actually relax and, and change your nervous system state so that's the other approach one thoughts changing the body you know and then the other is okay your actions affecting your nervous system which affects you know your mind and the way that your mind thinks so let's all do that together and then we'll establish the other side so we're going to take six breaths together and invite everybody uh if you can close your eyes if you're driving you can just take the breaths so we'll take six deep breaths together <sighs> Really let it all out on the exhale. Notice how your thoughts are a little bit softer, how your whole orientation on life has shifted. And this is something I love doing when I give speeches, especially when people are rustling around and they're excited and you know I'll have them drop in and it creates this kind of harmony, this kind of everybody drops down to a similar frequency and then there's resonance and it's easier to move as a giant organism through like the emergence of a school of fish or everybody's with me in the speech and um, it's a beautiful thing and it doesn't take very long at all. And there's different types of breath work, many different types. This is just a very simple one of six deep breaths and this is the other thing to learn you know and these two tools these are like the two rudders all right your mind can affect your body if that's a little hard to grapple your mind all right, no worries your actions through your nervous system can affect your mind and now the self-healers out there all right we got two things that we can really work with to go with us on our journey for some of us you know we we need help we need those reminders along the way because i'll speak from my own lived experience, living embodied, dropping into, being aware of my breath, using my breath intentionally wasn't my autopilot. So once I went and got going about my day, for me, it, it was a slippery slope to remember to do those things. Because here's where I offer these practices, whatever they are, breathwork practice, you know, a, a transformational ayahuasca experience, these are contained in a moment of time in the morning when I do breath work, that weekend retreat experience. Right. My question always is, what is happening on my day to day when that autopilot is strong, when my habits and patterns are at the ready, getting ready to dictate my reactions throughout that moment in time. So for a lot of us, it's building that bridge, building that bridge from that moment in the morning where I remind myself of this beautiful power of my mind and or power of my body or bringing that level of consciousness from the weekend into 
my day-to-day life. So here's where I suggest maybe we harness the power of technology that we're always carrying around with us. And maybe we use reminders on our phone, or maybe we have a supportive relationship and an, an accountability partner where they send a text throughout the day. Because in my opinion, it's expanding these practices beyond one moment in time to our daily habits and patterns. So for a lot of us, we need those reminders because we're immersed in that autopilot until we begin to settle into some new habits and patterns. We need help. We need something outside of ourselves. So suggestions I've used, like I said, I set reminders on my phone. I've had people in my life that were walking the journey of healing, my partner included, that were alongside of me working as those active reminders. And that's why part of the reason I'm, you know, was so impassioned about going online um, and creating a community was for those relationships. So anyone listening, if you don't yet have those supportive um, healing buddies, if you will, knowing that there are other you know, individuals out there, possibly around the world, you know, in communities like myself, healers like yours, like ones that now exist online, that could be that touch point of support or accountability and a reminder. Because like I said, we need that help to begin with because that autopilot is strong um, and we slip right into those old habits so easily. Mm. One of the things that uh, that really came through is to understand the then understand the mind and what its primary drivers are, what its objectives are. And the mind is a relentless pleasure seeker. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to seek out all of those pleasure and reward chemicals like dopamine. It's going to find those pleasurable sensations. So your mind is doing that, but it will always be trumped by avoidance of danger. Mm-hmm. Avoidance of danger always takes priority. 70% of our thoughts are negative. We'll always remember a negative experience more than we'll remember a positive experience. We're wired to look at danger first. In the absence of danger, all right, go ahead and seek all the pleasure. But do so with the minimal amount of effort possible because that homeostatic impulse, as you write about, that desire to stay the same, to conserve energy, our brains that are 2% of our body weight but 20% of our energy consumption, it's just trying to stay chill. So that's like understanding the brain in a snapshot. Avoid danger, get pleasure, and do it with as little work as possible. What an eloquent snapshot, Aubrey. So thank you for that reminder. Um, I share that reminder often because I know what happens. Um, I've lived this experience and I've heard this experience reflected back from many clients is when we don't understand the physiology at work that for many of us is keeping us locked in those familiar patterns, which might be completely counterintuitive because people might be listening saying, well, I don't understand this relationship is negative for me. Why am I still gravitating back to it? It's because it's familiar. And I know a lot of us carry shame. We carry thoughts of defectiveness or unworthiness. On some level, we don't feel this alternate life, this other future is for us, or we're not deservant of it. We feel broken. So thank you for for acknowledging that. Um, Again, the reason why I speak about things like the homeostatic impulse and our physiology is because there is an explanation. There is a reason why we're often, more often than not, locked in these states of nervous system dysregulation, um, where we have difficulty you know, embracing safely the present moment. A lot of us have difficulty being in that flow state, touching creativity, um, being in that essence, because we're locked in, in a feeling of, of threat. Um, so again, that that is really, I think an, an important thing to honor, because like I said, a lot of us carry all of these beliefs of unworthiness, of defectiveness, and of brokenness 
based on these, this very real difficulty. Yeah. One of the other steps that you mentioned, which I think is really important is to, and it's something that Joe Dispenza really is the foundational piece of, of his work is building that future reality and, and living that emotionally in your own mind, being in that place where you see yourself as that healed, vibrant, fully expressed individual that you're working towards and actually have a very clear view of how that person walks, how that person talks, how they interact throughout the day, the type of relationships they have, the, their vocation, what, you know, what that person, your future self is doing. But interestingly, that process, and I've experienced this myself, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago when I first started, even less, maybe even five, you know, when I was really trying to dive into this, it would be hard sometimes. I would have aversion and resistance to even allowing my imagination to see me in that vibrant, you know, fully expressed state. Where is that, you know, first of all, how important is it to have that vision? And second of all, where is that resistance coming from? Why is it hard to actually even imagine being that person that we're striving to be? Our, our beliefs, you know, about ourselves, about others, about the world, lock us in, into those beliefs. Um, so what I mean when I say that is you'll read in my book, the way I define belief. Um, and what I believe a belief is, is it began with a thought, a thought that oftentimes is in reaction to some experience that we're having in the world. And what happens internally, the more repetitively and consistently we have that thought, we fire up something that's called our reticular activating system. It's essentially our mind's filter. It helps us navigate the endless barrage of way too much stimuli that we can handle in a moment. So our mind outside of our awareness has to, or it serves us by sifting through. And it does so based on what it believes is relevant or is most relevant to, as you said, very beautifully, keeping us safe in the given moment. So what it does is we become a self-confirming machine based on our beliefs. Our beliefs operate filtering out everything that would disconfirm the same belief in any given moment, continuing to offer us that confirmation. And so that belief becomes wrapped around part of who we are. So what happens when we try to, and this is why for a long time, and for some of us even maybe still, this idea of mantra work or affirmation or right positive thinking, just think yourself toward a new thought and you'll feel better, doesn't work. Because the second we try to offer ourselves a new thought and or embody a new experience as part of the manifestation practice, our subconscious is online and is evaluating that as unfamiliar, this is not an accurate thought for me. This is not accurate based on my lived experiences. So I'm going to push that out of the way and again, create either that resistance in the mind, me just endlessly refuting why this isn't accurate about myself in thought, or some of it, it drops down into our bodies. We feel that actual visceral agitation, or maybe we just start to feel different. I don't even know who this person is. It just doesn't feel like me anymore. And before I know it, I'm back into that old practice thought, confirming those old beliefs. So for me, I began affirmation work with that similar eye roll, you know, beginning to practice new thoughts consistently over time, though not expecting to believe them, not expecting the second I offer myself, one of my core beliefs I'll share with each of us now is how I'm not considered. So one of my earliest affirmations would be every day to offer myself the opposing thought, I am considered. 
And for a very long time, that subconscious was saying, no, you're not. And I'll show you all of the million ways today you're not considered. And it takes the repetition of laying down some new neural networks that over time will allow me to embody the feeling of being considered as I began to expand that filter, as I began to instruct my reticular activating system that actually there's some a new belief on the scene here. And all of that, that latter part of the process, being able to be comfortable in that new emotional experience or being able to be comfortable in actualizing that new way of being in the world comes later on. And that's why I talk about resistance and I talk about it so much so that listeners can acknowledge that it's universal. We can even reframe it. When I get that agitation, that discomfort, chances are it's because I'm in some new unfamiliar space. It's not a marker that I'm in an unsafe direction in actuality. It's just new. And for some of us, that can be the reframe that allows me to more comfortably inhabit that space, as opposed to, I think, what a lot of us might have done, taken that to mean, oh, a sign against or, you know, further evidence of that not being for me. So for many of us, it's just labeling resistance for what it is. My subconscious difficulty with the unfamiliar that is this new thought that over time, like I said, will make space for. It'll become less uncomfortable to inhabit a new thought, therefore less uncomfortable to inhabit that new feeling and then that new way of being. Though, again, don't anticipate that the second I offer myself a new affirmation that I'm going to get on board and wholeheartedly believe it. Because for most of us, we've been working decades, right? Self-confirming and wrapping all of these other beliefs around who we are. Yeah. That reframe is really valuable. I was, uh, again, I'm, you know, listening to a lot of Andrew Huberman and we're, we're going to do a podcast soon as well. So there's this beautiful combination of your book and, and, you know, listening to Andrew and talking to him. And one of the things that he talks about is how when you engage in a process like going to write, which is what I'm doing now, and I have a, a dear friend who's another writer, and how when you start, you're going to have those same periods of agitation and the same periods of resistance where all that the last thing you want to do is sit there and continue to write. But if you push through that, you always find that you'll actually get into something, some kind of productive flow. Some are, some are better than others, but there's always that point of resistance at the start and you always have to push through it. But the moment you tell yourself this is normal and you're doing good sitting there you're doing a good job like you're enduring you're enduring this and you're not reacting to it and you talk about that in your book too and you start to give yourself the love and appreciation for enduring that well then it starts to kick in the dopamine mechanism because dopamine comes in whenever we think that we're doing a good job We'll, hit, we'll have that dopamine hit and it'll start to unwind that noradrenaline and norepinephrine that's causing this agitation and you start to say, oh, yeah, here I am enduring the challenging bits. Good for me. You know? And then all of a sudden, your brain chemistry starts to change, and it smooths out some of those periods of resistance. And so for us in our writing session, you know, all right, we're going to have about a 90-minute ultradian rhythm cycle, which is these natural cycles throughout the day. We're going to go in. There's probably going to be some resistance as we start this. We're going to endure and push through and give ourselves a lot of love for pushing through. And then that's going to kick in the dopamine. And then we're going to be a lot closer to that flow state for writing. And that simple reframe, I mean, we just kind of went right through it, got our, you know, 90, 120 minutes or so through there had some snacks because that's when it's like all right time to shift something bounce on my trampoline and then it was ready to go again but that knowledge 
then I know that's made me a better rider. I know that made her a better rider. Just that simple reframe of saying, this is normal. You're going to experience this agitation and enduring it is what the hero does. And then, then, then when you do it, you're like, yeah, I'm a hero. <laughs> that makes a big difference. And an added byproduct, um, I believe, and I love that you use the word enduring, is to develop the confidence that we can endure, to develop for many of us or rebuild our capacity for stress resilience, which is the ability to take on a stressor, to fall into or out of regulation and to have the stressor dissipate, to go away, to come back into that homeostasis and into that calm. And the reason why I say that's an added byproduct and and an, an important one, in my opinion, is because just speaking from my own experience, I myself am, and I've you know encountered many adults who don't actually have stress resistance, who've become an expert like myself at avoiding discomfort at all costs. And half the time, some of us don't even realize we're doing it. Um, for some of us, just living endlessly in our monkey mind is a distraction from the sensations that live in our emotional bodies. So many of us, I called it my spaceship. Um, for a very long time and I wouldn't even notice when I when I boarded the spaceship or not because um, I did it so unconsciously though what I came to realize is I would board my spaceship anytime I would start to register that physical discomfort in my body so the reason why I'm sharing all of this when I began the practice of landing my spaceship and of coming in, in embodied in myself I was completely dysregulated and I, I had little to no endurance um, there, every stress in my body felt that much more uncomfortable. So if, you know, you're, you're like me and you're listening and, you know, you do know that you have a habit of not being embodied and, and being in the body feels unsafe. Um, my suggestion wholeheartedly is, is not to jump into that deep end, right? This isn't where we want to dive into every difficult memory that we've ever had in life, this is actually where there's incredible value of gradually developing that tolerance of gradually showing ourselves that we can tolerate small level discomforts, building up the confidence then to take on all of the emotions that for many of us have been contained in our bodies for a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to, to recognize, you know, for me is the body, the mind kind of conflates uh, pain with danger because that's, you know, one of the signals. So these, these painful things that we may have to face, the body says, okay, that's a dangerous thing. One of the painful things that we have to face is disappointment. And it's not actually dangerous necessarily. It's just, but it's painful. It's painful to be disappointed. So, and Dr. Ross Ellenhorn does a great job talking about this, the fear of hope. And this really landed for me because one of the things that's hard about envisioning that future self is then you start to hope and you start to believe that that might be possible, which is then setting you up for the disappointment if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't work out that way, if you can't heal, if you're not able to get through your challenges, if the, you know, the world doesn't work as an, as an ally to kind of conspire to bring you to this state, whatever reason or excuse you have why it's not going to happen, you start to fear that. And you fear that disappointment and the brain says, okay, this, this potential pain, this is danger. And so it gives it priority. So it'll, it'll rather say, let's avoid that. Let's avoid that potential pain, which is a potential danger. And let's just stay here in this manageable, you know, sometimes manageable, but this level of baseline suffering so that we don't expose ourselves 
to this potential slap of disappointment if all of our envisionings and desires don't actually come true. I'm having a, a reaction, you know, hearing you talk about the concept of hope, um, because I was largely hopeless for a very long time, stuck in that state of dysregulation, you know, I think wrapped up in my own beliefs and limitations. Um, I was that person who feared hope unbeknownst to me. And the moment I was reliving, as I heard you offer that, that word was a moment where I was having an exchange with my partner, Lolly, and I can't even tell you what I said or how I looked or what it was in reference to though. I verbalized something. I turned to her and said something and she looked at me and her jaw dropped open and she said, Oh my God, Nicole, I think I see hope. And it was, mm. I believe, I mean, we had been in a relationship for multiple years by that time. And it was the first time that she was co-witness to that different feeling or in, I don't, if it was in my eyes or in, in my verbal, whatever I said. Um, and she was right. That was the first time I believe that I was able to open and, and touch that that state of possibility that on the other side of hope can come disappointment and as i described myself earlier someone who outsourced someone who looked to everyone else for my cues on how to be what to say what to do one of the continued most difficult things that i struggle with is disappointment is embodying my authenticity and acknowledging aubrey that there are some moments where i will inevitably disappoint even those closest to me, not having the resources to show up the way that they might be best supported in that moment would lead to disappointment. There's many things on our human journey where our authentic way of being might result in disappointing someone else in some way. And there are still that at my core is one of the most difficult things. Like I said, it was one of the things I attempted to arrange myself in every you know gymnastic way I could to avoid doing just that, exhausting myself, living out of alignment, I came to realize that that's inevitable disappointment, that is. And still in the moments where I don't show up or I can't show up or I choose not to show up, disappointment is incredibly difficult. And I love how you're kind of marrying that and hope is very connected. And for some of us, a threat-based state. So it becomes easier to shut it all down, to just to expect life to continue as it is, as opposed to opening up to possibility with the possibility of disappointment. Yeah, it, it takes courage. Hope takes courage. And I think that's something that people really need to understand. Like that is, that is a courageous act to really believe that things can be different because you are opening yourself to that. But if you can, again, start to reframe and say, aha, this hope, this envisioning of the future, this is a courageous act. And, and really start to give yourself that pride, that sense of, you know what? Like, even if I lose, I'm gonna be courageous. It's what every athlete does or what all the classical warriors did. It's, we're gonna show up and we're gonna fight as hard as we can. And whether we win or lose, whether we come home with our shield or on it, we're going to we're going to show up with courage. You know, and that's how we can approach our own healing journey with that courage to hope, that courage to believe, and and really just love ourselves for that. And that will give us even more fuel as we say, oh, all right. You know, as I say in, in my book as well, go hero, go. Like here I go. I got this courage. I believe that I can heal and I believe that I can change. And uh, and that'll just be that fuel source that'll just keep that, keep that going. Even when there's also fear 
and trepidation and concern and discomfort, all of which come along with change. I think I use the word expand often. Um, I think it, it is our best interest to develop that expanded consciousness, that ability to honor all of the feelings that we might have in any given moment. And at the beginning of many of our journey, that fear is right alongside, you know, the hope is right alongside the courage. There are discomforts there too. So making space for all of it um, will help us avoid the tendency to shut off one or, you know, uh, avoid feeling one because we don't think we should. Um, and I think we do that a lot with ourselves in many different ways. We sit in judgment, we sit in judgment of our thoughts, we sit in judgment of our feelings, we sit in judgment of the way we experience ourselves. And for some of us, the most healing journey is allowing what is to be. So allowing there to be that seat of courage and allowing there to be right next to it, possibly the seat of fear, which is very natural. Yeah, there is no courage without fear. Otherwise, it's a, otherwise it's a stroll in the park. All right, so with these tools that we have, our ability to you know, regulate our nervous system and, and start to learn that, ability to regulate the health, which we haven't gone too deep into, but you know, people can dive into that in, in my book and this book, The Ways to Support Your Health. With all of this, I think one of the really great things that your book did is it, it allowed a window into how to start healing the potential traumas of our childhood self and to reparent ourselves. And you know, this is something that is... This is a big part of doing the work is to see and go back almost like a time traveler, go back in time and actually bring that inner child, give it what it needs. And so if you could go through, you did an amazing job expanding the definition of trauma because we all understand that, all right, sometimes there's really clear physical abuse or really clear emotional abuse, really clear sexual abuse. And this is what we might think of as trauma. But you give a list of, I think, six or seven different types of traumas that we might have experienced as a child from our parents and then you know how to support that child now having dealt with that because i'm pretty sure that all of us have dealt with you know one of these different things at least so so this my idea of expanded um, spiritual trauma really comes from that state of dependency that we talked about earlier and you know the need that we have to form these relationships and again, what we do in absence of what I believe is a core universal spiritual need of being seen, heard, and self-expressed, like I said, we begin to modify. We can begin to modify based typically on our core primary relational dynamics, how our caregiver showed up, how our siblings showed up, and how the space that we felt we had or didn't have or the safety that we felt we had or didn't have to continue to embody that authentic self. Most roads for most of us led down those adaptations, that playing of roles or wearing of masks in order to continue to get our needs met, like I said. So there's different, again, I kind of came up with archetypal categories of things that could have happened um, consistently, again, over childhood. Typically, this is an accumulation of these moments more often than not in those earliest experiences that lead to those continued adaptations in our relationships later in life. So whether you had parents who didn't have boundaries themselves, so maybe weren't showing you how to maintain limits around your physical, emotional, or spiritual selves, or maybe you had a parent who couldn't regulate their emotions, so there were big, overwhelming emotions in your household. 
or maybe you had caregivers that were overly focused on appearance or how you appear you yourself for the family unit to the outside world. Before long, what we did is we adapted to all of these situations and we started to operate um, in those modified ways based on those earliest experiences. So when I talk about inner child work and we talk about going back and understanding this wounding and these patterns, typically around coping, trying to tolerate what happened to us, we repeat them in life. So I get the question often when asked about inner child work, you know, what is it at the work? Do I go back? Do I have to visualize all of these terrible things that happened to me? Is that part of the healing journey? Um, and my response to that, I actually use my own lived experience in responding because I am someone who, because I was so detached and dissociated on my spaceship, I actually retained very few memories of my childhood. So like some of us might be able to you know, replay the movie screen of those bad experiences or just general life. You know, how did it look and feel as a, as a child, as an adolescent in my home? I have very few of those memories. So in responding to that question, I don't have that movie screen. I can't go back into those many moments where, so my core wounding, like I shared earlier, I didn't feel considered, right? And then I adapted. I started to perform. I started to show myself in the way that I knew I was considered. And I started to block off all of the aspects of myself that I knew didn't elicit that love or those feelings of consideration. So I began to repeat that over time. So while I couldn't go back to all of the moments, what I suggest, if you're like me or if you're wondering, how do I do inner child work? We can begin to observe ourselves in real time. We can observe how we just care for our bodies. What are our physical habits like you and I talked about? How do we care for this vessel that we're in? Chances are we're operating, we're using the same tools that we learned, modeled in childhood. Same thing emotionally. What is our emotional world like these days? How do we cope with emotions? Are emotions even present or are you like me? So dissociated from them. Again, chances are that same patterning that I picked up in childhood is repeating now. Chances are I'm still embodying those same roles now. So what we want to do is, I always believe there's two very loose stages of change. The first is awareness. The first is becoming a conscious witness to those parts of ourself. Um, anytime, chances are we have a big feeling, um, we come either explosively reactive outwardly, or we use those, I jump on my spaceship, I dissociate. Chances are when we're in that emotional state, our inner child is being activated. And chances are, like I said, it does map on to some earlier experience we have. So we, when we become a witness, like we talked about previously, we can expand. And in those moments over time, we can begin to make new choices to create new habits that maybe better serve my physical body that's different from my caregivers or help me navigate my emotions that might be different and might soothe differently than, again, my caregivers. And again, the most unique journey for all of us is around that spirit. We're all different spiritually. Even if you feel very similar to those that you were raised around or among, we are a different being. So learning how to expand in those moments when I feel that urge to restrict myself in those old ways, and again, to walk through the discomfort of being new. So when you hear me talk about the inner child, Aubrey, I'll acknowledge we all have one. 
We're all carrying it with us stored in that recess of our subconscious. And chances are some of the habits and patterns that are no longer serving us are wrapped around that earliest wounding. So to become aware of it, to witness it, and then over time to expand where I can create new choices of how I would like to navigate those moments now. Yeah. And, and to really do this and understand that a lot of times as we uncover, you know, all of these different things that our parents largely unconsciously did, it's not about casting this blame. They're really, everybody's doing the best they could. And they were operating and imprinting upon you what they understood in their own worldview and their understanding of things and their desire. I mean, I think one of the the deep ones that a lot of people have is our parents have a desire of what what a ha, what a good life is and a good life is being successful being able to provide for your family being able to or being in a relationship it depends you know male female can sometimes be different but it's a lot of things having a having a relationship having a successful job all this it's not necessarily being a fully expressed happy human you know that's not what our parents that's not what they were striving for they were striving for these things so they're of course going to try and imprint that upon you to strive for these things and the more they see you steering that the more they're going to encourage you with the sunshine of love and then withdraw that sunshine when you're out in another way and so you know trying to bend your little sapling towards the light of what they feel is the highest you know the highest good and then that's just their conditioning and then of course then they have their own traumas that they're playing out their own emotional dysregulation i think one of the things that you said that was really powerful is many children are more emotionally mature pre-puberty than their parents and so in that case in some ways while their parents may have more accumulated knowledge they're actually the parent and that's something that a lot of people realize even as adults like they'll they'll hold this parent child relationship when it's like no you're the parent now you've surpassed them in emotional and spiritual intelligence and it's not a race it's not a comparison but just to recognize that you're in the flower of your awareness and your knowledge and your spiritual actualization you don't need to hold them in that parent role anymore like you don't have to maintain that construct like allow that thing to to pass with grace from your life going even you know to a younger age i think we as as parents as humans can can learn I, i'm not a parent i don't have children so i can't fully relate to to the experience of of giving birth and and of navigating all the complexities um, that come along with that though younger children you'll hear me talk in my book about childlike wonder and how that doesn't diminish once childhood is over um, children for the most part as far as i see and experience them they're really connected to that essence. They're really ever available in their flow state. When they're having a feeling or need a boundary, you hear about it immediately. They're filterless. And I love what you're saying. And that evolves into adolescence where for the most part, these are humans that aren't yet as conditioned or as impacted. Looking from the parent's standpoint, oftentimes the parents are, like you said, very well-intentioned, Sometimes they're even attempting very well intentionally to do in opposition to what was done to them so that they could provide their children, right? A different experience. Parents are also like we all are as humans, highly subjective. We're applying our own meaning and our own life experience to everything that's happening. And 
it's hard, I believe, for parents to, I think, separate that the way they define something or what's, you know, resonates with them might not actually translate to their child and what's best for their child. And this is, I think, where we find those mismatches. And before long, to retain those connections, to retain our goodness, we do begin to modify and modify and modify. And then we do become, again, the parent who's limited. So part of the healing journey, and I go into this in my book, is as we uncover our patterns and as they were, you know, we become aware of how they were many times transmitted intergenerationally, a lot of feelings could come up. We could want, feel upset with our parents, feel disappointed, feel angry, want some sort of uh, retribution or want some sort of apology or want something to be different. Um, and that's a really complicated space. I think if we can expand to again, acknowledge the limitations that can be healing for some of us um, and for others, you know, it's redefining relationships, even within our family unit, it's learning how to show up differently, even in absence of our family getting it or understanding, or maybe even being on board actively in our change. Because for a lot of us, as we heal, as we change, the relationships around us don't necessarily begin to join us in that supportively. For a lot of us, it's actually the quite opposite. It's us having hard conversations with caregivers and family members or beginning to show up differently that brings discomfort, um, at least initially. And that's where, you know, you, you make a great discussion about boundaries and how, you know, setting the right boundaries and how you can set boundaries that are too rigid and boundaries that are too loose or boundaries that are just right. You know, that kind of Goldilocks, flexible, mm -hmm. honoring yourself, seeing, you know, seeing what's there, understanding what you can tolerate, but also allowing yourself to stretch, you know, stretch your edge and see where you're comfortable. And that's the, that's the skill. But if we've allowed the pendulum to swing too far one way, far too loose, we allow people to trample us, we allow them to overrun, well, we're probably going to swing back a little rigid. You know, that's just that's just the nature of it. Until we can find that equilibrium in the flexible, but that will happen. And it's you know, some people have a really hard time letting go of the past, letting go of the past dynamics and the past relationships. In a way, the way that someone connected to you, you have to allow it to die, and that's going to require a grieving process of allowing that to die. But it's necessary for what's new to emerge and for that new thing to come and exist in a way that actually is supportive. And if it doesn't, you have to be willing to just, you know, with grace and with love, let it let it go away. I love that you're you're mentioning grief here. Um, grief is a very big part of, of the shedding journey because what we're shedding are parts of self, aspects of self, ways of being, old relational dynamics to make room for the more aligned, for the more authentic, for the more sustainable, of course, though there is a loss. And for me, I've had multiple and I probably will continue to grieve different aspects of loss. Um, for me, you know, losses of identity, you know, from being the clinical psychologist that had this one view of the mind and the world to shedding all of that and embodying a new truth, all of the loss in terms of who I thought I was shedding back all of the layering of my ego stories, things I told myself, things I rehearsed being for so long to make room for something new. And then of course, the very real losses um, that I've experienced, losing actual relationships, 
that are no longer in my life um, by my choice or others and or shedding the dynamics. I no longer show up. I'm working to continue to not show up as that old self. I'm learning to inhabit a new aligned, authentic space in my relationship. So in that I'm shedding again, old dynamics that are continuing to shift and change as I create new ones in lasting relationships. So I love that you're, you're highlighting that the loss, even though the direction I'm walking in has fulfillment and has all of these positives, this is what we were talking about earlier, right? Allowing in the sad, the loss, you know, the old and all of that comes with the grieving of that as it goes away. Yeah. You know, and, and this goes really ties into a lot of your discussion about the ego work. And, you know, the ego is an identity construct and that identity is formed largely based on beliefs and also, you know, relational understandings, who you're with, who your parents are, what they are. But these are not just the physical things they're the way that you're relating to the world and then the beliefs that you have and all of these things so when any of that changes the way that you're relating to somebody else changes then that ego has to let that part die let that branch of its own tree die and it, when your belief changes which is part of who you are well then you have to let that part die and every different aspect at every point we have to let you know let this past attachment that we have die and to really move gracefully through life we have to get really good at allowing these things to die but give it the respect and give it the grief you know and give it that cry that wail you know martine prestel does an amazing job talking about how a baby grieves the moment that it comes out of the womb it grieves the fact that it's no longer in that nurturing everything is taken care of i can hear my mom's heartbeat it's all warm and now i'm in the cold air and what does it do it wails and it screams its grief out into the world because it's cold and the air is breaching into its lungs and it knows naturally that it needs to cry that primal cry and let that go and then settle into the new world Ooh, and it's an exciting world and I can move and there's people and I can see and then you can start to explore this new world. But the first step is to let the universe and let source hear that cry. Like I'm crying for this thing and give ourselves the space to do that in a world where probably our parental figures and those around us said, those wails, those cries, those are not acceptable. We do not want to hear those. You know, be quiet. This is not something that's important. It should be the opposite. Like cry your cry scream your scream wail your wail let it go and now see the beauty of this new life that you have yeah absolutely and, and i think you know the more we can just allow allow to be all that is you know honoring all that is um and that's that is the journey of it because none of this comes you know overnight for a lot of us we've been practicing doing the opposite of detaching disconnecting not honoring all of these aspects of ourselves. so for many of us you know when i say self-healers it, it's not to insinuate that we we heal self only um, it's in doing the internal work on ourselves that we're actually changing our way of being to then impact outwardly our relationships um, and the world around us and for many of us biggest hurdle is, is the inward process, is learning to create the safety, to even turn within, and then to expand, to develop the tolerance, to endure everything that's been within, that we have been withholding possibly, 
for so long to allow ourselves to first and foremost gain security and comfort within our own authenticity before we then vulnerably begin to share it with others. Now, for a lot of us, there are helpful, supportive, safe others that can create the relational safety and space to continue to receive us as we get more and more comfortable, though it is inward and it is pulling back those layers and those veils. And for some of us, it does mean honoring those whales and allowing those screams to be part of the journey of healing. It, it doesn't get better immediately. Um, for a lot of us, we have to continue to touch the darkness, the hurt, the pain that has been within that we haven't been allowing to come out into the surface before it begins to feel relieving. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of a, of a quote that you had in your book from Chief Black Elf of the Oglala Sioux. The first piece, which is most important, is that which comes from the souls of people when they realize their relationship, their oneness with the universe and all its powers. And when they realize that at the center of the universe dwells the great spirit, and that this center is really everywhere. It is within each of us. That describing how that first piece, you know, the first piece comes internally and then connected to everything. But the self-healing journey is in many ways the most selfless thing that you can do because you have no chance to serve the world until you want to heal the world as an unhealed being good luck. It's not going to work. You want to offer service when you haven't been in service to yourself. You know, it's, it's not really going to work. And it's the idea for the, you know, the community that I founded called fit for service. The idea being like, you got to get fit for service first, and then you can be of service in order to be of service. You have to be fit for service. And it's been beautiful to see people with that similar mind. All right. I'm going to become fit. What's the end goal? Well, the end goal is service to the world, but the first thing is service to myself. And the more effort I pay and attention to that, the more naturally it's just going to flow. I've been very familiar with, with all the work you put out in the world, Aubrey, and love it and so aligned with it and could not agree more. And, and it is individuals like yourself, like myself, because I think a lot of us individually, culturally, collectively have for a long time been thinking that showing up in service of self is selfish. Um, I think that word, you know, self-care has gotten a lot of uh, bad, bad rap for a long time, where a lot of us have been led to believe that there's something inherently wrong in considering ourself and our needs. And I couldn't agree uh, with you more in terms of we can only give and we are only a vessel for the message that we have and our essence to translate out into the world in so much as we're connected to that vessel, we're connected to that essence and we're honoring that. And so for many of us, it's rebuilding those connections first before, again, I can show up in service of the world because I've lived the alternate journey, which is continued, which was an attempt to continue to show up in service of others only eventually over time, not only to deplete myself completely, but to come become incredibly resentful of other people upset, holding them responsible for my continued unmet needs until I realized that I need to hold myself responsible. That is, it is my job to make sure I am an aligned, centered individual, fit for service before I show up and serve. And if I make the choice to serve before I feel ready or before I'm able 
then I have to look at, again, the role I played in making that choice and not, you know, project my upset to the person who needed me in that moment. Um, and I believe that's how we continue to show up to create collective change as we all become fit for service through our own healing. And that's, uh, and that's what we need now more than ever. You know, we need to have that awareness to see like, okay, why am I getting so angry on Instagram? Why am I attacking someone? Well, because I'm insecure about my own position. My own ego is insecure and I'm trying to establish my beliefs with force and oppression and, and my violence of speech at the very least, you know, trying to enforce this idea that I am separate than, better than, you know, because that's what the ego wants. And, and just being aware that, the moment we engage in that, even to defend ourselves in that way, you know, is the point where we've lost the plot. <laughs> you know, we've we we're not we're actually f exacerbating the same issue of you know if someone attacks us, we attack them right back. It's a very natural thing, you know. I, I get it. It's the very human response. Oh, you're gonna throw this punch at me, and I'm gonna and, and I'm gonna attack you right back. But that's not the way. The way is to see where they're coming from, why they threw the punch, you know, what their beliefs are, understand that they're attached to that and it's part of who they are. And they're enforcing that and defending that like a wild animal would defend its very skin, you know? So it's okay. And it's okay, little scared tiger with the, the hurt paws and the, and the wounds deep in your heart. Like, it's all right, buddy. Like, relax, you know? And that's what the wise adult version of us, the healed version of us, can start to do and the more that happens the more we can start to help people pluck their own thorns out and start to heal and then everything starts to calm there's not going to be in my opinion any grand leader that's going to come in and save the fucking day well, what are they going to save we got to save ourselves. you know there's nothing that's going to happen externally this is this is our journey you know and we're going to be the ones that we're waiting for all of us I'm smiling because I think that's so beautiful, that extension that we can offer, the more grace we extend ourselves and sitting in the awareness of a lot of our reactions are evolutionarily driven, are driven right, by our hyperactive, oftentimes nervous system attempting to keep us safe. We can beautifully extend that grace to others. And social media, I mean, is where most of us spend most of our time and it is an interpersonal macrocosm in a sense where all of the same relational stuff exists there, right? So we can see those reactions in ourselves when I become incensed, when I read that thing or that opinion and or when someone else, if you are a creator, you put work out there in any way becomes incensed at what you are or what they imagine you to be saying. So that grace very beautifully goes both ways. Um, I know myself, I have endless opportunities to practice that grace in both directions knowing that I too can use social media to, you know, kind of tug at my subconscious to activate that stress response. I know exactly where to go to find things that are going to stress <laughs> me out online. And at times I make that choice. And I also can, you know, sit in observation and sometimes on the receiving end of others and their reactions. But again, like I said, that grace, the more we can expand. And this doesn't mean that sometimes boundaries aren't warranted of course we don't have to sit in an unsafe situation because we understand why the other person is reacting as such or why we're reacting as such in both situations we can create safety for ourselves by removing ourselves to find the safety if we're activated or by putting up a boundary if we find ourselves in an unsafe situation though that grace 
um, very beautifully goes goes both ways. And oftentimes we practice it inward and then we reflect it outward. Some of us have better success at practicing it outward, extending that grace to others before we can then practice extending that grace to ourselves. But either way, I do see that direction expands both ways. Yeah. Why don't you leave us with, uh, you know, speak directly to the to the self healers, people on their journey out there with some uh, some final words of encouragement. Of course. So first of all, I just want to thank everyone, as I often do, who listens to podcasts and conversations as this, you know, with with curiosity or or whatever it might be that that called you to to hear people like myself and like you, Aubrey, speak, um, because for many of us in and of itself, this is challenging. I know some of the newest messages out there, like you're saying, this soul, this essence, this is challenging um, for a lot of us humans. So honoring, showing up and hearing what might be those opposing messages, those messages that are triggering, maybe activating you in this moment and holding space um, for those reactions is, is an incredible gift that you're giving yourself. And Speaking to, to all of those self-healers, wherever you are on your journey, um, here I am to remind you that you're right where you, you're supposed to be. Because I know that we do carry that ego with us throughout the journey. And that ego loves to judge, loves to look at where other people are, and typically to judge ourselves as not being good enough or not being where we need to be in our healing. So I think for some, for some of us, um, my offer of support in that way, you know, acknowledging and internalizing this, that you are where you need to be can, can be hugely healing. No doubt. Well, the book, when is it available? Where do people get it? What, uh, where can people find more of this? So the book is currently still on pre-order. Um, how to do the work comes out officially March 9th. So we're very nearly there. Um, it can be ordered. I have all of the links for those of you who follow me on Instagram at the dot holistic dot psychologist can find all of the pre-order links for here in the U S as, a, as well as, um, multiple international, um, opportunities where the book will be translated. So I'm super excited about that. So the Instagram is a great place, uh, to get any information about all things book. Um, as well as anyone who's interested in the future self journal. I do have the free template if anyone is interested in getting started right now and intentionally journeying towards your future self can also either go to my Instagram or to my website at yourholisticpsychologist.com and grab that journal template and perhaps even jump on the wait list uh, for the self healer circle, my virtual community. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This conversation was phenomenal. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thanks for, you know, doing the work. That's what we all need to do. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast with Dr. Nicole LaPera. I hope you got some valuable information out of this. And definitely check out her book, How to Do the Work. And once again, as I mentioned in the intro, if you're interested in figuring out your own sacred role in your community, in your tribe of friends, go to aubreymarcus.com slash tribe and take the quiz. And if you're ready to explore that community, check out the Fit for Service Academy app, first month free available in the app store. Thank you so much, fam. I'll see you next week.